0: this is the first cassette of lecture five in this series the orthodox church in alaska by father michael alexa the title of this lecture is alaskan orthodoxy today unsung heroes of the 20th century and another canonization Tonight we want to enter the 20th century, but I'm still stuck at the end of the 19th, actually. We've been we're talking about the history of the Alaskan mission, and we've spoken about St. Herman and St. Innocent and St. Yakov Netsvetov and the Alaskan martyrs, St. Juvenali and St. Peter the Aleut. We could add to this uh, constellation of, of holy people. St. Patriarch Tikhon, who was also bishop of uh, the Aleutian Islands and North America, but had a vicar bishop appointed, Bishop Innocent II, in 1905. So the Bishop Innocent that we now have in our diocese, the Diocese of Alaska, Bishop Innocent, is actually Bishop Innocent III. He has the right to a Roman numeral, you see, after his name. We've had three Bishop Innocents of the Alaskan Diocese. Uh, St. Tikhon, of course, returned to Russia before the Revolution, And I often say, I don't mean it in this respect, but he kind of won the booby prize of church history because during the Russian bombardment, the Bolshevik bombardment of the Kremlin, he was at the last (coughs) moment elected patriarch as the the, the all-Russian council voted to restore the patriarchate. He was also then chosen to be the patriarch of Russia at the most difficult time perhaps in the history of the Russian Orthodox Church because it was he then who had to shoulder the burden and the brunt of the Bolshevik persecutions up, in, up into the 1920s and died under house arrest in Donskoy Monastery. He was buried secretly and no one quite knew exactly where. Strangely enough, and this is certainly providential, uh, about five years ago now, I think, uh, someone, even though the Soviet power had collapsed, firebombed one of the churches at the Donskoy Monastery. And the fire was quickly extinguished. However, it was just enough to burn through the floors the floorboards, and uh, in the process of restoring the floor, they found under the floor the grave of, a, of someone. They opened the coffin and found him wrapped in the green mantle of the Patriarch of Moscow. So they discovered, after all these years, because of an act of, uh, of evil, really, against the church, they found the relics of St. Tikhon. So St. So Patriarch Tikhon was canonized, and his, his body lies in one of the two churches they actually on certain days, move him from one church to the other, one of the two main churches in the Donskoy Monastery. Um, And he also, you see, visited Alaska and is also connected to the Alaskan church and the church in America. It was under him that the Hapgood service book was printed. You can look in the front of your Hapgood, the service book that we all use uh, and have been using most of this century, published in English, Vespers, Matins, The Hours and such. Uh, at least extracts from most of the major feasts, and it was the only service book in English available for probably the majority of this century, and it was he who commissioned it and had it printed and and fostered the use of the English language in keeping with St. Innocent's directives from 1868, who already insisted 50 years earlier that... Clergy who spoke English should be assigned to America, the bishop should speak English and be multilingual if possible, and services as quickly as possible should be celebrated in the English language in North America. All of which took a lot longer to come to fruition to be implemented because of the difficult historical circumstances facing the church after 1867 with the transfer of Alaska to American rule. It's very interesting. Maybe we should comment on that for one moment. You remember by this Bearing in 1741, Alexei Chirikov, came with, bra- with brass plaques that said, this land is under Russian protection. It could also possibly be translated, this land is under Russian rule. But protection is the actual translation. We've only relocated one of these, and it's in Sitka, and it's mistranslated. In the display case, it says, this land belongs to Russia. There's a difference between being under the protection of a government and that person owning the place. The American government is responsible for protecting Alaska, but the United States government doesn't own all of Alaska. You have the deed to your house, supposedly, and that's your property. It's not federal property. There's plenty of federal property here, to be sure. But, <laughs> but uh, people also have their own. And the same was true in Alaska during the Russian times. What was sold for $7.2 million in, 19- in 1867 was this Protection, this sovereignty. The Russian flag went down, the American flag went up, people stopped using rubles and started using dollars. Uh, The postage stamps, if you could find them, were American rather than Russian and so forth. The American government became the government of Alaska. The Russian government ceased being the government of Alaska. That and the assets of the Russian American company. The treaty explicitly lists the the wharfs, the warehouses, the docks, the buildings that are being sold. It's a kind of going out of business sale of this monopoly begun by Gregory Shehlikov. And it didn't go very smoothly, by the way. Uh, they tried to reenact the transfer ceremony, which occurred October eighteenth, eighteen sixty seven at Sitka. Every year on October eighteenth, an Alaskan state holiday called Alaska Day appropriately, uh, people dress in costumes and some pretend that they're the Russian governor and other the American guards and Uh, Colonel Rousseau, the American colonel reads uh, the person impersonating him that is, reads the same words that were said back then, but you could never completely and accurately reenact the original transfer ceremony. First of all, they put the flags on 60-foot Sitka spruce trees, very high trees, so that people from all over could see the Russian and American flag. The Russian flag was there and the American flag was going to be raised. As the Russian flag was lowered simultaneously and then the the cannon the battery on shore were to begin firing the salute and it was to be answered by the American boat in the harbor so that both flags would be saluted by this uh, 18 gun salute I think it was well about halfway down the flagpole the Russian flag got stuck still 40 feet or so off the ground and they kept pulling it and pulling it and nothing was going on. The wind was blowing so strongly that the flag in fact wrapped itself around the flagpole. Some sailors from the garrison decided to try to shimmy up the pole and bring it down, but they got about halfway up and ran out of steam. So at this point you have a rather ridiculous uh, situation of the cannon still going off because the people aboard their ship and the people lighting the cannon were oblivious to what was going on on the flagpole. The salute was fired all right, but the flag wasn't come down and now we have sailors up there stuck halfway up on this flagpole. (laughs) Finally an an Indian man, was using some ropes, was hoisted up and the wind was so strong they were calling him, bring it down, bring it down, but he didn't hear them so he took out a knife and he began cutting the Russian flag from its... And when he finally freed it, it came floating down and covered the Russian honor guard. At which point the Russian governor's wife fainted. <laughs> and this is how Alaska was really transferred to American rule. <laughs> These are eyewitness accounts that later were published in American newspapers, but they had it all, you know, with great dignity. It didn't quite work that way. Now we can't possibly re- reenact that. The flags go up rather quickly. They're metal, and they're only about 20 feet high and so forth. The, the, the reenactment goes very smoothly, but the original act... The original ceremony was rather a comedy of errors. Um, Immediately after the sale, the American government virtually did nothing with their new territory. It wasn't until 1884 that the Congress of the United States made any provision for the government of Alaska. So from 1867 to 1884, nothing. No schools, no post offices, not even any military guard. There was a customs tax collector at Sitka. That was it. That was the federal government presence in Alaska. Some people would welcome a reduction of that sort nowadays. But it meant that there were really no government services provided in the colony in the nearly 20 years immediately following the transfer ceremony. And it was a transfer of sovereignty. It was not, from the Russian perspective, a land sale. Congress debating the treaty already had it calculated at two cents an acre or something like that, even cheaper than Louisiana. Of course, there were others who were against it because they said it was just a bunch of ice and rocks and snow and walruses. <sighs> and you have anti-sale uh, cartoons in American newspapers opposing spending so much money, $7.2 million, for this worthless piece of real estate. Well, of course, they were we, we know how wrong they really were. But, uh, in fact it wasn't two cents an acre either because it wasn't a land deal. They were buying the assets of the Russian American company, which were here and there, like buying Sears, you know. And then they were receiving sovereignty. And the the land, the treaty says, belongs to those who live on it, therefore the indigenous people. If you want an easy explanation for the Land Claims Settlement Act of 1971, it's precisely because the Native Alaskans reading the treaty, said, um, you can't build that pipeline across our land. And the federal government said, well, it's our land. Remember, we bought it from Russia. And they said, read the treaty. <laughs> and so Alaska is the only state that had to be bought twice. Sovereignty was purchased for $7.2 million in 1867. The land was not bought until 1971. The native people refused to sell all of it because, after all, they need some for their subsistence lifestyle. So one-fifth of the state remains in native hands. It's often interpreted exactly the other way, that the government gave land to the natives. Not at all. The native Alaskans kept the land they wanted and sold the rest of Alaska to the United States, extinguishing their claim to the majority of the real estate, 80% of Alaska, for about a billion dollars. Which actually still comes out to be something of a bargain, even at 1971 prices. In any case, that's the and Saint Innocent played some role in that, and some Aleuts in in Saint Petersburg played some role a role in that to make sure that their people wouldn't be deprived of their rights in Alaska after the transfer. Russian citizens, which meant all these people we're talking about so far, were given the option to either stay in America and become American citizens and declare so within three years or returned to Siberia, also within three years. Nearly all those who had been born in Siberia left. Virtually no Russian citizens who had actually come from Siberia or Russia remained. They all simply, they were on seven-year contracts, remember. They had never come to Alaska as permanent settlers anyway. So they went back, it's perfectly understandable. Schools, churches, businesses, shops continued to operate operated by those Aleuts with whom we concluded yesterday. The literate native population who comprised 60% of the population of Sitka, 90% of the population of Kodiak, and so forth. They, business as usual, their, their Russian friends went home, but they had been educated, they were literate, they were running their own shops and stores, and they were the ones who expanded the mission after Alaska became American territory. So the church continued to grow. And then thanks to the Mission Society, whose organization we discussed yesterday, funds and material came from Russia to continue the expansion of the Orthodox Church in Alaska. In 1894, for example, exactly 100 years after the first missionaries, some Clinkets in Juneau uh, were under some Presbyterian pressure to become Christians. And they went shopping the way St. Prince Vladimir did in in 988. One of their chiefs was having a recurring dream in which a short, balding, white-bearded man appeared to him and encouraged him to become a Christian, but he didn't know of what sort. And being the chief, he sent his, one of his sons, Dimitri was his later baptismal name, to Sitka to find out about these, this church over there. And the son Dimitri came back not only baptized, but with a small icon of St. Nicholas. And the chief said, that's him. And so they sent for Bishop Nikolai, <laughs> the patterns repeat here, too. And 200 klingets received baptism in Juneau. And then 200 silver rubles were sent from Moscow to buy the lumber, the blueprints, the icons, uh, the candle stands, the epitaphios, the plastionitsa, the banners, the chalice, the censer. They equipped a full church. It just came in the mail, so to speak, uh, from the missionary society in Russia. And it's still there. It's the oldest uh, continuously uh, in use, chapel in southeast Alaska, but it was not built with by any missionary initiative. The native people themselves requested the baptism sent for the bishop. It sounds very much like the Indian people I talked about last night, the people in Chagalluk who invited St. Yaakov to come and baptize them. There's absolutely no indication here of any sort of political or social advantage to this conversion, nor certainly is there even less any coercion on the part of any authorities. If anything, the authorities were militantly against the Orthodox Church by this time. Uh, If we want to very quickly review interracial relations in the United States during the last 500 years, we have 300 years when the policy, the colonial policy, and then the federal policy toward indigenous peoples was one of extermination. It's not a very happy thing to say, but it's simply so. Scalping, as I think I mentioned before, was a, there was a bounty on Indians. And if you could prove that you had killed so many, an Indian or two, you could get money for that. And, and this was policy for these 300 years. And of course, for African, Africans, it's enslavement during this time. From 1800 to 1850, we have a slightly more enlightened policy. It's removal. Native people are removed to the West. The Cherokee Trail of Tears is in this era when you just say to those people who are kind of cluttering your own landscape, move west, the Mississippi, Oklahoma is a good place for you. And under military escort, the southern tribes of what were the tribes of east of the Mississippi are moved to Oklahoma. From the north, they're moved to South Dakota. These were considered to be two completely re- worthless pieces of real estate. Of course, later we found oil in one and gold in the other. They weren't so worthless after all. But this is the time when treaties are signed with Indian tribes that whatever land is left or willed to them will be theirs as long as the grass is green, the sun shines, the rain falls, and so forth. And uh, removal is also applied to freed slaves. This is when Liberia gets founded, and African slaves, freed slaves, are put on boats and sent back to Africa. If they couldn't afford trips to Africa, Nicaragua was runner-up. So that the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua is also settled by freed American slaves from the United States, but this is how you deal with people who are different from you. It's a tribal attitude, the first one, remember? If, if people are racially, culturally different from yourself, the safest way to deal with them is to get rid of them, physically annihilate them. And this is an age-old attitude. And by the way, it, it exists in us. It's not just something in the past. There, there are children on kindergarten playgrounds around the world who, meeting a, another kid racially or culturally different from themselves, or somehow or other inspired to beat them up, to attack. Uh, There are skinheads around who still think that that's the right way to deal with the issue. But in the United States, at least as policy goes, by the early 1800s the policy was removal instead. You're different from us but therefore please get out of the way. And kids will do this too. They have a disagreement with someone, get off my property. Go home. I mean, it's, it's a, in a sense, not just a policy or part of our history, it's, it's an apparent solution when you're having trouble with someone who's different from you in some way. Now, after the Civil War, and this is where our, our Alaskan story picks up, from 1870 to 1970, we have assimilation as a policy. We couldn't ask people who were different to leave because we put up the Statue of Liberty and just invited them to come. You're tired, you're poor, you're huddled masses, and they showed up. You see, this was the problem. Suddenly, you don't have people from Britain and Northwestern Europe, Scandinavian and Germanic types. Now, after the Civil War, you have mostly Italians and Greeks and people from the Balkans and Eastern Europe. And they don't speak languages intelligible and aren't even considered refined. We have barbarians in fact, Harper's Weekly calls these people barbarians. They're illiterate, you see. We come full circle. It's exactly what the Frankish-German bishops were saying about the Slavs in, in the 9th century. Now we're in the 19th century, a thousand years later. But these languages are not civilized languages. Of course, the civil, civilized languages are no longer Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. It's much more French, German, and English the real European languages, and Polish doesn't qualify, you see. And almost none of these people are Protestant. These are Jewish immigrants, Roman Catholic immigrants, and of course Eastern Orthodox immigrants. What to do now? We can't kill them, we just invited them in, and we need their labor. We want them to work in our mines and our factories. In the years after the Civil War, there's tremendous economic boom in the United States. And we're not going to ask them to leave, we just invited them in. but. What will happen to the country if we let things just go the way they are? And there's a McCarthy-esque paranoia in the press, in the newspapers and magazines for 20 or 30 years. What to do? What have we done? This is radically going to change the uh, social fabric of the country. We're going to have people of different languages, different religions, and different races, because those Greeks and Italians didn't look white enough. And now we've got the slaves freed. What next? It's a lot of turmoil, social and, uh, and political turmoil at the, during these years, what to do. And the public schools are founded, state by state, not to so much assimilate the, the um, immigrants, because they went right to work, but their children. The children are, by law, required to attend school and this is why we had prayer in the public schools. It wasn't because these children were not religious. They just went to the wrong church. And the public schools did not mandate uh, uh, anybody's religion, religious practices. They mandated Protestant religious practices. You prayed to pray like an American meant to pray as a Protestant Christian. That's why the Roman Catholic Church refused to participate and built their own parochial schools because they saw this as a real threat to their existence, to their survival in America. Uh, For most immigrants, however, they came in order to fit in. They were glad to be here. My grandmother was happy to see her kids go to the first school they could have ever attended. So they were going to learn English, they were going to learn how to fit in, they were going to become Americans, which was the whole point of coming across the Atlantic Ocean in the first place. So assimilation actually worked for the overwhelming majority of immigrants. It did not work nearly so well for Aleuts. You can imagine what happened when the first public school teachers came uh, to, to Alaska to people who already could read and write in two languages the Aleuts who knew Russian and their own language. And the teacher said, I came to teach you to read and write. And they said, Very good, but we actually already do. They said, Well, we came to baptize you and make you good Christians. They said, Thank you very much, but we already are. At which point, the teacher had to say, wrong languages and wrong religion. And you wind up with 30 years, we have the documents, it's really 30 years of not just Cold War, but sometimes Hot War, between the public school teacher, who is in Alaska always a missionary of some American Protestant group. Always. That's how they were pointed. Among the Indian tribes in the lower 48, various denominations were given reservations. So that a particular tribe was to be evangelized by a particular church. And they were federally subsidized. It was church and state working hand in glove. So that I can tell you in Alaska who got what. The the Presbyterian church got southeast Alaska because the commissioner of education, Sheldon Jackson, was himself a Presbyterian minister. They also got the North Slope by default because nobody else wanted to go up there. Because the Anglicans, the Episcopal Church had already begun penetrating down the Yukon from Canada, they were given the interior, and most of the area in red here, the Athabascan area was Episcopal Church uh, mission territory. The Baptists were given Kodiak Island, which is why the oldest non-Orthodox mission in Kodiak is the Baptist mission. The Methodists were given the Aleutian Islands. The uh, Moravian Church was given the Bristol Bay area. The, the Swedish Covenant Church was given Nunavak Island. The, the Society of Friends, the Quaker Church was given Kotzebue and the surrounding area. The Lutherans got Nome. And if you travel throughout Alaska, you can, you can tell that those are the only churches of any la- long-standing there. Other groups have moved in, you know, you can find an, a, here and there an Assembly of God mission or, or a Pentecostal church that have more recently been transplanted from the lower 48. But the the Alaska was divide, divided into spheres of influence, and the federal government uh, provided this. The public school teachers, you see, were uh, underpaid as civil servants, and so the, missions of each, the mission societies of each denomination supplemented their income. So you had a missionary federal school teacher who had the governor and all the weight of the federal government behind them, and usually an Aleut native priest running his own bilingual school in the same town. It's very interesting, in the 1880s, Sheldon Jackson, as Commissioner of Education, wrote a letter to the Orthodox Bishop of Alaska and asked for the list of where Orthodox missions and particularly schools were located. He said, it's silly, I have limited resources. There's no reason to have two schools in the same town when there are so many towns with no school at all. So Bishop Nikolai, I think, rather naively complied with Sheldon Jackson's request. And then Dr. Jackson put schools in exactly the towns where the Orthodox had their schools. Because the Orthodox bilingual schools were were sort of the antithesis of the kind of school the federal government wanted. They wanted to assimilate native Alaskans. And you can't assimilate them if you're going to let them speak their own language and teach them to read and write in it. They were supposed to melt into the same melting pot as the immigrants. It was simply the same policy from the lower 48, transplanted to a different context. Famous word this whole week, right? And because the context was different, it didn't work. The immigrant came voluntarily, and they had a homeland on the other side of the Atlantic to to where they could return if they so desired. And by the way, 30% went back. They They didn't like America that much. First of all, there were no feast days here. They had no fun. You know, in the old country, a wedding lasted at least three days, sometimes a week. In America, it lasted five minutes. What kind of culture is this? And people actually returned saying, we'd all be rich like America if we were that crazy to work like that, to work all all the time and never relax and have a good time and enjoy our communities, our villages, and so forth. So a third returned. But those who came, they came in order to fit in, and they knew that there was a homeland back there to which they could return if they wanted to. The Native peoples were just sitting here minding their own business, and suddenly, well, I'll describe how the school arrives. In other words, they hadn't immigrated, they hadn't gone to another country to become something that they weren't. They were just here being who they had always been, the way we always, and suddenly someone comes and says, that's no good anymore. Secondly, if they give up their language and culture, there is no other place to return to. It's gone. This is home. If Klinkit is no longer spoken in Klinkit country here in Alaska, it's, it's extinct. If a Polish immigrant doesn't speak Polish, there's still a Poland. But if a Yupik doesn't speak Yupik, uh, Bishop Seraphim of Canada calls the Yupik area Yupikia. Well, if you don't speak Yupik in Yupikia, then Yupik culture and language is, is gone. It's dead. So, for these two reasons, the assimilationist policy that worked so well for most immigrants completely failed, in my opinion, among native Alaskans, at least in the first half century. Instead you have fights, you have petitions, you have protests. And they're not only about the schools. The Tlingit Orthodox Aleut people, both Tlingit and Dunangan and, and Sukhbiak, three people, three different cultural groups, wrote a petition to the um, President of the United States. as William McKinley, 1897. And it starts off very innocently saying, well, you know, we've sent you several such petitions, but we never got an answer. Uh, they infer, some subordinate must have got a hold of them, but now we're, we hope that this gets right through to you. And this got published in the newspaper, so perhaps the president actually did read it. There are three points in the Clinkett petition. The, the governor, a Presbyterian governor in league with the Sheldon Jackson, Mr. Brady, is um, rather enterprising. He sees the economic and commercial possibilities of being governor of Alaska. And so the first uh, point in their petition to the president refers to Governor Brady, not 1. Do not allow Mr. Brady a right-of-way through the center of our village along the beach, which is situated between the water and our homes, where we keep our boats, canoes, and other things. Forbid him to destroy buildings and other property while building this road. We do not offer pretensions to the land he now possesses, which was ours from time immemorial, and served us as a cemetery. It's bad enough that he unlawfully took possession of that land, and with the bones of our ancestors, he banked the ground and threw some into the ocean. We do not wish to have such work going on. Two, we beg Mr. Smith and the superintendent of the Baranoff Packing Company, how appropriately named, <sighs> to be forbidden to take away our bays, streams, and lagoons where we have fished since long before the white man came. We want him to do such fishing as is necessary for him with our permission. We demand he stop putting up bars and fish traps across the streams whereby the fish cannot enter the lakes for the purpose of spawning. His method of fishing in the last eight years, and they list the bays, compels us to see very plainly that the places mentioned here are becoming empty of fish. So the first is we shouldn't have the governor riding a, driving a road through our village and destroying our buildings and especially desecrating our cemetery. It's a reasonable request I think. The second, that the the cannery shouldn't be allowed to simply deplete the entire salmon. It's a conservation plea here. This message is continued on side two. The second, that that the cannery shouldn't be allowed to simply deplete the entire salmon. It's a conservation plea here. Third, and this is really one that grabs you We do not want American saloons, we beg the government to close them. We understand that whiskey is poison for us. Tramps and idle people, like soldiers and sailors, that's their words, not mine, (laughs) bring whiskey into our midst from those saloons. They give it to our wives and daughters and make them drunk and often seduce them in this condition. We have brought these cases to the local authorities here, and the result is that the white man goes free and unpunished while the native suffers fines, imprisonment, and punishment. Saloons and other places of amusement of such caliber are not necessary for the welfare of our daughters." Wonderful statement. (laughs) We do not want the civilization, and I take this with tongue-in-cheek, it's sarcastic, We do not want that civilization that only does not stop saloons but encourages them. We do not want the education by which our daughters are torn from their homes and alienated and taught the English language only to give them an easier scope and advantage to practice prostitution. Drunkenness brings adultery by which our family is destroyed and all ties of family relations are are hampered We do not want to look upon these horrible existing evils with ease and light minds, and we wish that the crimes committed would be punished, not by light fines, but in some way that would do the most good. And this last line is something. We do not imagine for one moment that the dance halls and dives of Juno and Sitka must necessarily be filled with our educated daughters. We could go on without end to our petitions, but they basically say that's enough, those three will do. And then these people sign their names in English and in Tlingit, and all this is written in Cyrillic. So you see, this, this ability to stand up for their rights and to protest comes directly out of the Orthodox mission and its schools. They would not have been able to to formulate their complaints or to petition the president of the United States if they were illiterate savages, you see, as the government assumed they were. Instead, they had their hands full fighting the protests and even some of the court cases and lawsuits filed by the orthodox natives. What we have, however, because the Russian Revolution brings an end to all Support from Russia, and therefore the closing of all the schools. The last one closed in 1918 at Unalaska. What we have in the last century is this kind of picture. I would de- I would describe this section of my talk as the history of any village in Alaska. First of all, you have the arrival of the school teachers, these missionary teachers. They're very peculiar people. Don't remember? Don't forget. The real people are all living in. Houses that look like this, the sod houses with the smoke hole and the exit and the imak and the Nuna and the kilak and all those things I talked to you about in my first lecture. They're living as they always have, since they have for tens of thousands of years, perhaps. And suddenly, these guys, no one was expecting them, no one invited them, come to the town and they put something like this in the middle of town. It it might as well be a spaceship from some other planet they've never seen, seen anything so pointy so high so angular and they have no idea what it is in my wife's villi- village they put it right over the water supply right on the well so now it was you know like dorothy's house in oz it didn't land on the witch it landed on the water and now you can't get your water you can't go to get fetch water from the well because there's this thing sitting there they asked the guys who are building it chahuauna what is this and they say it's a school how a school look what's a school nobody has any idea what this is apparently it's a big wooden thing that sits on your water (laughs) (laughs) then come the teachers 1890s style the the man with a handlebar mustache and a and a suit with buttons on his vest and buttons on his sleeves and buttons down the front and even buttons on his shoes gets off the next boat people gawk at him how long does it take him to get dressed, they wonder. <laughs> They've never seen so many buttons in their life. And then there comes his lovely wife, who is even more marvelous. First of all, she has a hairdo something like Marge Simpson, you know, piled up in the 90s style. And there's something wrong with her posterior. It's, it sticks way out, and people gawk at that. Is that real? <laughs> They would like to ask, but, of course, there's no way they can even make the inquiry politely. <laughs> A few days later, Mrs. Big Butt goes outside. <laughs> and she makes all this clanging noise. The bang ba-bang, ba-bang, ba-bang. All the human beings look out the doors of their traditional homes. They see this lady, in you know, with the posterior and all, making all this noise. What's going on? No one has the foggiest. The teacher, of course, expects that everyone knows that when you ring the bell, the kids come to the school. But why would they want to do that? From a traditional point of view, you see, you stay away from this thing. It's a very straight, uh, unusual contraption there. But, so it takes the teacher weeks, usually, in the history of education to convince the children that when she rings the bell, they should come clean and, and scrubbed jump into their seats inside this, this spaceship. <laughs> she sits them all in rows, and she makes a perfectly clear and, uh, and emphatic announcement. School rule number one. There will be no use of your native language on school property during school hours. But this is said only in English. <laughs> so Johnny says to Ivan, <laughs> What she's saying, I can't understand her. And whoever broke the rule right there gets spanked, whipped, or his mouth washed out. And everybody else in school stays very quiet the rest of the day, and usually the rest of the year. Because they have no way of understanding what it is this strange semi-human is saying to them. I asked my wife what it was like to go to such a school. She said, actually, it wasn't so bad. We didn't understand anything that was going on. But we used to play school at recess. Said, you played school at recess? Didn't you have enough while you were in there? No, we went out on the... how did you do that? She said, well, we sat in rows. That's the important thing about school. You have to sit in rows. And the play teacher would get in front of the play students and go, and one of the students would raise their hand and go, that was school. I mentioned this in southeastern Alaska, and an elderly Tlingit woman told me we used to do the same thing. <laughs> Except when we pretended to speak English, we didn't go, S-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s. we went, la 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 la. Children pick up on the sounds of the language that are completely alien to their own. So since Yupik has no S-H or R, English sounded like <laughs> and, and for Klinkit who have no L, they have a voiceless L, a, a lisped L, but they don't have a la. So Klinkit said la 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 la, that's English. But you can only take so much of that, you see, and then it gets rather boring kids stop coming to school. People have their subsistence activities to attend to. So this was a rather interesting and curious experience, but what's the point? Talk about useless, meaningless, and irrelevant. And then when you're getting beat up, as soon as you open your mouth, you can understand the problems of education in the early years. Now, I mention this not only as sort of a, I wish someone would write the comedy or the tragedy called You see, the school. Because it could be quite hilarious in some ways. But it's also quite uh, negative as well. Because what's starting here? The outside world is coming, literally crashing in, so to speak, on your traditional community, with this attitude. You poor, backward, stupid, and ignorant people who have no education and can't read and write. We have come to enlighten you. We have come to Christianize you. And we have come to teach you to read and write and speak English so that you can be like us. And the little girls look at that bustle and say, no, thank you. <laughs> but the rest of the village finds it rather peculiar that these people have these rules that they want you to follow, like come to school whenever we ring the bell. it would be fine, except that in August she rings the bell a few hours after dawn. In October she starts ringing it just when the sun is coming up. And in December she gets really tricky and starts ringing it in the middle of the night. You can never tell when this bell is going to go off, and you're always in trouble for being late for school. Of course, the teachers have the only clock in town. So, it's very confusing and frustrating, this whole thing. The basic ground rules of the game have never been explained to the players, in this case. The attitude, however, is, from the government's side, you folks are backward stupid and ignorant, and we are here to enlighten you and therefore you will have to depend on us. This is not a dialogue. You have nothing to teach us, we have nothing to gain from you. You have to learn everything from us, so just be quiet and listen. So we start with this attitude of dependence, followed by 20 years or more of confusion, not only for the individual child or the individual family, but for the community as a whole. Remember that these cultures were dedicated to getting along well with each other. How to relate is a cardinal principle of the culture itself. You want to humor these people, at least. You don't like that they get angry and raise their voice. And you can always tell. You see, they start shouting, they start hitting the kids. They start, you know, in English, they start condemning the community as not being interested in the advancement and education of their youth. But no one knows what's going on, really. There's confusion and there's a lot of frustration. And then, you see, it takes about 30 years. But after about 30 years, some kids have gone to school long enough to qualify for an eighth grade graduation. In the first few years, you see, you have Johnny stuck in in second grade for about five years because he never goes to school long enough to get out of the second grade. He goes hunting, he goes fishing, the family leaves. The pattern was that people spent three months of the year in their village and nine months hunting and gathering. The school calendar is just the opposite. You have to spend nine months in the village and three months fishing. Well, So the calendars and the lifestyles were completely at odds. And so people just refuse. They go off with their kids anyway. But that, because of truancy and, uh, and the absenteeism, keeps the same kids in the same grade for years at a time. I can talk to even people in Old Harbor, uh, elders there, and say to someone in there who's a grandfather, 50, 60, 70 years old, how far did you get in school? And they don't want to talk about it because they're 60 years old, but they only made it to the fourth grade. But they only made it to the fourth grade because they spent most of their youth doing what people had always done. And in the age before food stamps and even grocery stores, there was no alternative. But it's done a lot to harm the self-esteem of people now who feel ashamed to admit they were not successful in school and in fact hardly went consider the context here and what was going on. By, eight, by the eighth grade graduation then you have some kids being shipped off to boarding schools. That means that the, your teenage population simply leaves town. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. Uh, boarding schools came and went. We had a hundred years of them. Indian kids in the lower 48 were usually taken off their reservation and shipped as far away as possible from home. The Carlisle Indian School near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, was the first experiment in this regard. Right after the Civil War, you take Navajo and Apache kids from Arizona and you send them to Pennsylvania. The hope was they'd not only learn English and cut their hair right and dress in the right clothes and become respectable like the immigrants, but they would never go home. They'd get a job and they'd fit in and they'd melt into the proverbial melting pot. And, and that would be the end of the Indians, you see. We will have solved the ethnic, racial, Cultural, multiple uh, cultural problem because everyone will be the same, that's what assimilation aims at, we'll all be the same. And it didn't work, the kids got on the train and went home and took off their neckties and went back to being (laughs) Indians all over again in the first generation. In the second and third generations they're a bit ambivalent about both. They can see the positive and negative of both. I can sum up the next 30 years in a quick anecdote by saying I know a bush pilot uh, in southwestern Alaska who used to fly the kids from their villages to Bethel or Nome or Kotzebue, where they got on a wean jet in those days. Alaska Airlines did not yet enjoy the monopoly they have now. And they, um, they then flew on the jet to Anchorage. And there was a Bureau of Indian Affairs official there to escort them from one plane to the other so they could make it onto Oregon or Oklahoma or wherever they were being sent. Later on, after World War II, it was Sitka. Mount Edgecombe as well. And every year this pilot said the students I gathered in August were crying as they got on the plane. And every May, much to his surprise, when they returned they'd be crying again. After about five years of this he asked some of those guys, how come every spring when I bring you home you cry and every summer when I take you away you cry? You cry when you come, you cry when you go, you cry either direction, what's going on? And these Native Alaskan students said, well, that's easy. When we leave our village in August, we cry because we don't want to become white men. And every May when we come home, we cry because we don't want to be natives. That's the predicament you put the last two generations of adults. Some succeed. Some do well in those schools. They get elected to boards of directors of Native corporations. They're they're used to wearing, and even feel comfortable by now, wearing uh, suits and neckties, you know. It wasn't all bad because the Native population needs leaders who can deal effectively with the modern outside world. But for the majority of students, it's, it's devastating. This generation, or these two generations, are angry. But it's an inarticulate anger. They don't really know what they're angry about. They suffer a lot of grief. And I think the grief is easier to identify. They grieve because if they had stayed home, they would have learned the traditions, values, the culture of their people. And by leaving, they didn't. And those who dropped out and stayed are more traditional and more in touch with the traditional values and stories, myths and legends, patterns of appropriate behavior, and are more comfortable being who they are. The others are grieving because they lost that. And they lost four years of contact with their parents and their elders and their community. And they also come back not able to speak the native language very effectively. They can read and write in English better than anybody else, but it's not a job skill in a village yet. It's not something that gives you immediate prestige or a job of any sort. It's simply an academic skill at this point. So there's grief there for this loss of contact in these lost years of where the cultural transmission simply didn't occur. That leads to a certain bitterness. And finally, some hostility, also inarticulate. They're hostile toward their own people to some extent because they really do feel a certain shame at being who they are. The worst indictment I ever heard from a native Alaskan elder about this generation of people who are, who are our parents today now. But 20 years ago, an elder said in Bethel, these students come home from the high schools and they're strangers to us. But worse than that, they are strangers to themselves. Well, that's like flunking curriculum objective number one. You no no longer know who you are. And that things begin to accelerate. 30 years here, 30 years here, sometime in the next 10, what I call the great lie begins to take root, subconsciously, really, in the minds of this generation. They begin to blame themselves for their lack of success, in this other culture. We didn't make it very well in school. We've dropped out. Even those who did realize that they can't do what other high school graduates can do. White folk, it seems, are born with a birth certificate in one hand and a college degree in the other. They get to be doctors and lawyers and nurses, and we get to be health aides, teacher aides, and uh, paramedics. They have the professional status, and we help them. We're always the Tonto. We never get to be the Lone Ranger, see? And that must be, after so many years, our own fault. Maybe we really are, as a group, stupid, backward, and ignorant. No one says it in so many words, but that's how people feel. They, they believe what I believe is the great lie. We can't. These other people can, but we can't. And it doesn't take long and it doesn't take much before, usually under the influence of alcohol, at least initially alcohol. Later on, in more recent years, uh, illicit drugs. This anger and bitterness and grief and hostility begin to erupt, erupt like lava from a volcano, pent up for 20 years, and then the explosion comes. And it's manifested as antisocial, and or self-destructive behavior. When I first became a priest, we had the first suicide in the history of my village. We were having daily services. I had a church school. The sisterhood was redecorating everything. We redid the church. I had morning prayers for all the kids before they went to school. I thought I was doing a great job. And then you start having these emergencies, these crises, and something is terribly wrong. And what did I learn in seminary that will give me the strength or the guidance to deal with this? That young men in particular are simply killing themselves. I was in a school district. Um, last this past april where every yearbook in eight schools was dedicated to the high school seniors who were not graduating and they were not graduating they were members of the gra- they would have been members of this year's graduating class but they had all committed suicide by by guns or by hanging 12 suicides in eight villages so what is going on what is happening here And this this is something new. Twenty-seven years ago, when I came, it wasn't like that. So what? What's the? And it took me ten years to figure out. First of all, when you're the person in charge in some way, you blame yourself. I should have done something. I should have been able to intervene. This takes a hundred years to get going. It's as if those of us who are there as pastors, teachers, or helpers of one sort or another are just walking on stage, and it's already act four. We think it's act one because we just entered. But in this story, it's been going on a long time before we arrived. And just because we showed up doesn't mean the whole story is going to change. We're not supermen. You know, actually, Americans often think that it will. The Lone Ranger is one of the most popular myths in American culture, I believe. And you know every Lone Ranger, those of you who are old enough to remember the TV or radio show, radio really would date you, but every episode of the Lone Ranger was exactly the same. The structures or patterns or authorities in that town or ranch or village had collapsed. The the guys, the The rough riders, the bandits, were out of control and the sheriff sat there with his hands in his air not knowing what to do. Or the Indians were on the warpath and the, the men at the fort had no idea how to handle it. And into this breakdown rides the Lone Ranger. And within 30 minutes, of course, he fixes it all. And then, of course, it's important he rides off into the sunset. To me, it's the model of American foreign policy. It's exactly what we expect to be able to do. We come in from we don't know where. Just like the Lone Ranger, you never know where he came from. (laughs) And he has the expertise, the strength, the wisdom, the know-how to repair what the people who were there all along couldn't. And then he leaves because he doesn't want to be involved. He doesn't want to stay connected. He just rides in and fixes. And we do that on a regular basis. We do that in what look like international crises. We want to send in the Marines, fix it, and pull out. Send in the Army. It's always it's usually a military situation, not always. Marshall Plan aid was the same kind of thing though. It's that menta- it's a it's a pattern. And for us it's a it's a, a pattern we even believe in. It's one of our myths, this Lone Ranger pattern. So the same thing applies here. Once these things begin to happen, once you have antisocial behavior, which is domestic violence, rape and murder, which I guarantee you, twenty-five years ago, we simply didn't have. It was unknown. And anti-self-destructive behavior actually is a little less clear because, well, of course there's the out-and-out suicide that's less frequent than accidents which are very often perfectly preventable, young men mostly taking serious catastrophic risks and when you tell them don't do that it's dangerous you'll get hurt they don't care and they don't listen. You can add to that HIV contamination. And you see what a time bomb we have going on. Don't do it, it will hurt you. So what? It doesn't matter. So accidents, health problems, addictions, addictive behaviors, and suicide plus crime. When there's more and more crime, you, big, you build bigger correctional centers and you hire more police. And when it's the other kind, you hire social workers, And people who are professionals in dealing with those kind of problems. So each town has their alcohol and drug counselor, a hotline, a suicide prevention office, and another 1-800 number. We bring in these experts from someplace else. We appropriate the money. We establish various programs, all designed as best we can uh, envision it to help. And the more help, the more dependent. And that's any village in Alaska. But I'd like to point out to you, it's also any city in Alaska. And not only Alaska. USA. Planet Earth. This is the context in which we operate now. Because Kiev is just this, and Shanghai, and Nairobi. An Alaskan village is just a perfect model, a little laboratory, by which to look at what's happening to the rest of us. It's not those natives, as if the rest of us were immune. Try Detroit, you see? But here we have a chance to take a look at it on a small scale and in isolation. I can name the names. I can tell you the family history of that one household and who in that household 20 years ago was here and who in the next generation was here and how many are now here. I've known the people personally. (laughs) They're my parishioners. So the role here, what's the mission of the church in this situation? This is very different from St. Innocent and St. Yaakov. We just can't come in and say, we have new bilingual teaching materials for you. We have to come and restore people to a sense of positive well-being, self-worth. The scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself, but what if you hate yourself? You can't love your neighbor either. So, to rebuild this is a massive new kind of missionary work. Much more difficult. I, people despair. Actually, I must say, I give this kind of talk to people in this category teachers, social workers, and the rest. They're almost relieved. Why? Because they, well, it's not my fault, at least. I inherited a situation that took a, if you really want to mess things up, it takes a good century or so. See? So at least you don't have to blame yourself for walking in on this situation. The cycle is now in place. What we ha- realize is then, how do, what do we do about it? How do we break it? And here's where I think the church has an important role to play. The only way it seems to me, whether I've taken two attacks on this. <laughs> One is to do whatever I can to remove the apostrophe T over here. And one of the ways to do that is simply to tell the story of those Aleut accomplishments from 150 years ago. If you think you can't, you're wrong. Given the right vision, the right uh, philosophy, the Native people not only succeeded but excelled. And when you tell Native people that they were explorers and navigators and cartographers and sea captains and missionaries and linguists and artists and musicians, it's not in the history books, you see. Bancroft didn't cover it. Bancroft overlooked that. So we need to rewrite the story to give people a sense that it's not just wishful thinking that you can, sometime in the future, become leaders in this state. It already happened. It happened a hundred years ago, and it happened long before Apple computers were available. They had far fewer um, amenities at their disposal, much less technology. They had a library that would fit on this podium. They had chalk, little slates and chalk to write on. They didn't have keyboards and electronic mail and internet at their disposal. They didn't have the Encyclopedia Britannica available with the push of a button. And they succeeded then. If they could do it then in a tiny school at Russian Mission in 1845, we can certainly do it now. The lie is a lie, and our our orthodox history proves it. This lecture is continued on the next cassette.